Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Uh, you're going to need a Bible. Uh, that's just how we roll at our church, okay? So there's a Bible in front of you. Open it up to uh, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 22. You can have it on your, your phone, either way. Phone, uh, just you need a Bible open because I don't want you to trust me. Isn't that weird to say? I don't want you to trust me. I want you to see this for yourselves in the scripture because I, I'm gonna walk us through something that I think will encourage all of us regardless of our age, all right? But I do have this question. Have you ever really thought about the phrase, over the hill? Just looking around the room at some of y'all, I know you've thought about it. I asked someone in our church who is in the kind of 80-ish range, I was like, what does over the hill mean? And she let me know, oh, that means that you're useless. I was, I can't. She goes, by the way, I'm not there yet. And I was like, that's a terrible definition of over the hill. So that, that's not over the hill. Um, some people, well, some people think there's an age to it. Some people claim, no, it's the age of 40. Everything after 40 is over the hill. But everyone who's over 40, we know that's just young people saying stupid stuff, right? Now, some people might think it's 50 when you turn 50. But I think it's this. I don't think it's defined by an age. I think over the hill simply means this. You just can't do the same things you used to do right? And if that's what it means to be over the hill, I'll let you know when I get on the other side of the hill, because I ain't there yet. All right? But let me give you some identifiers. You ready? And by the way, I'm doing this because David has an over the hill senior moment that we're going to get to in just a minute. But just to have some clarity, you might be over the hill if. Are you ready? You might be over the hill if you have a weekly pill organizer, You might be over the hill if when you get together with your friends, you mostly talk about your doctor's appointments. You might be over the hill if you can't drink coffee at noon because you're going to be up all night. You might be over the hill if your daily challenge is finding your glasses. Come on, and where are they? They're right here on top of your head. You might be over the hill if naps are the thing you look forward to in the afternoon. You might be over the hill if your back goes out more than you do. Uh, you might be over the hill if you look at this symbol on the screen, and that is known as a, the pound sign. Yeah, don't admit that and say it out loud. Younger people are like, uh, that's a hashtag. Um, you might be over the hill if getting up from your seat requires a rocking motion and a little grunt. Right? Uh, you might be over the hill if working out used to make you sore. Now just sleeping makes you sore. You might be over the hill if getting lucky used to mean something, but now it means you actually found your car in the parking lot. (laughs) You might be over the hill. Um, Here's what is great about being over the hill, or at least what people tell me. Your youthful enthusiasm is replaced by wise counsel. When you're young, you just have this youthful enthusiasm, right? But you don't always have the wisdom 
you need because you just haven't had the experience yet. Now, this is not true for everyone who's over the hill. Sometimes your youthful enthusiasm is just replaced by grumpiness. You've met people like that. There's no one like that in this room, of course. But for some people, that's actually true. Um, We have arrived at this place in David's story. And if you've been following along with us, um, we've just been tracking the, the life of David to see what we could learn about David. And David has this senior moment where it reveals that he is over the hill to some degree. But in this moment, when he has this moment, it's towards the end of his life. And then he writes this long letter that's a legacy letter that he wants to pass along as his legacy, his wisdom to a younger generation. But let me walk you through quickly his senior moment. You ready? It's in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15. It reads this way. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. The first time in his warriorness, in his life and career as a warrior, that we see David exhausted. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and he was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. I mean, it's literally this confrontation. David's about to lose his life because he can't fight anymore. And it said, but Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him saying, never again will you go out to battle with us so that the lamp of Israel might not be extinguished. His senior moment, he just couldn't fight the same way as he used to. I mean, he's the most valiant warrior, the most famed warrior in all of Israel. And yet in this moment, you can see his energy fading. He just can't fight like he used to. But David, listen to this. He had more to offer the nation of Israel than just being a warrior. He has all of this experience of walking with God and he wants to offer that up. So what we have in in 2 Samuel chapter 22 It's the longest text in the Bible of David's words passing along his wisdom and his legacy. And if you know this, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, it's actually almost the identical text to Psalm 18. I want to walk us through here and just encourage you, if you're in your 20s, listen up. Because you don't have David's wisdom of what it looks like to walk with God. Not yet. And there's two teachers in life. There's pain and wisdom. In your 20s, you can choose to learn through pain if you want to. But God is offering you the gift of learning from wisdom. I mean, if you're in your 30s, I'm just going to say what you're building right now in your life in your 30s is the legacy that you're going to hand your kids and your grandkids. You're building it now. And that legacy can be a gift or it can be a curse, depending on how you walk in your 30s. If you're in your 40s and your 50s, you're considering your legacy already. And if you're over that age, I would ask you this question. How are you communicating your legacy to your kids, to your neighbors, to your grandkids? Because as I read this, this is David's final words of wisdom. He starts this way. He says this, David sang to the Lord. This is verse one of chapter 22. David sang to the Lord the words of this song. When the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we're about to read this this legacy. And um, when did David write this psalm? We don't actually know because did you catch it? It said when, when he was delivered from all his enemies and from Saul. Well, th- that was a long time ago in his ministry. And it, you'll catch this in just a minute because David writes something in here that's very controversial and hard to figure out. And it might insinuate that David wrote this a long time ago after Saul had died and then there were, he had defeated the Philistines 
there were so many battles with the Philistines, who can even count, right? But maybe early on in his ministry. But here's what's interesting. The writer of 2 Samuel puts it at the end of his life. So David is singing this as his legacy song. And, and here it is. This is how he begins. The Lord, verse 2, is my rock, my, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my, my rock. Now, listen, when you hear those words, you just have to think of David running into battle with his warriors behind him. God is my rock. He's my deliverer. He's my rescuer. You just think when he's penning those words, all of these battles that he has lived through in his life are behind him. This is just deep experience because he wants, he wants for his kids and his grandkids to know that the Lord will be their rock, their fortress, their deliverer. He goes on, he's my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold, my refuge, my savior from violent people. You save me. This theme, it, it keeps going on. If you look at verse 18, it says, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. If David's gonna give you his his legacy and points. Let me just give you one. Here it is. God's the hero of our story. I think that's what he's saying over and over and over again throughout this entire psalm. I, I think it's a misread of David's story to make David the hero of the story. Don't make this mistake. As you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, as we go through this, the point is not to say, look how great David is. Go be more like David. The hero of the story is God. David is the archetype of humanity that he, he's the example of what it looks like to live in relationship with God in all of his brokenness, in all of his blundering, and also in all of his courage and character. David's highs are unbelievably high, aren't they? He shows great character and great courage at times, and his lows are the bottom of the barrel. He was a scoundrel. And so in the midst of this, I don't want us to mistranslate anything here. God's the hero of our story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he should be the hero of your story. So question, when people talk with you, when you share with them about your life, as you frame the story of your life, is God the hero of your story? Maybe you're the hero of your story. Or maybe as you frame your story, your story is actually a tragedy, not a victory. Can I say this, that God wants to be the hero of your story. And at the end of your life, when you're actually not here anymore, the legacy that you've left behind, the stories that people tell about you, is it stories of your faith in God, that you trusted that he would be the hero of your story. Um, another misread of David's story, I think, is this, that God was David's hero and God rescued me. And over and over again, you'll hear this word rescue. And I think a misread of David's story would be this. Yeah, God dramatically and miraculously showed up in David's life over and over again. That is actually not the case. Let me prove my point by this. Think back to Moses. You know the story? Moses rescued or leads God's people out of Egypt. Well, what happens? Well, he leads them all out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. They're backed up to it. The Egyptian army is coming this way. I mean, they're pinned in. What, is, what does Moses do? He prays to God. God parts the sea. They walk across dry ground to the other side. The Egyptian army follows them. And then God floods the waters back together, rescues his people in a miraculous, dramatic fashion. 
And if that weren't enough, by night, this pillar of fire shows up and leads the people and Moses leads them there. And then by day, it's this pillar of cloud. And if that weren't enough to to help people have water to drink, water gushes from this rock. I mean, it's miracle after dramatic miracle. God feeds them every day with manna, makes birds fly into the camp so that they had something to eat. I mean, this is Moses' story. What's the dramatic moment in David's life where God shows up with this unbelievably dramatic miracle? Well, you know the story that when David, when he was a shepherd boy, like a bear attacked him and another time a lion attacked him, but it said David killed him with his bare hands. But was God involved in that? Well, of course, that's how David frames it. God's the hero of my story, right? Later on, David fights Goliath, right? But is that a dramatic miracle? No, David uses his sling, hits him with a rock, goes and cuts his head off, right? I mean, God could have just struck him dead by a, by a lightning bolt, dramatic miracle. No, he just empowered David to fight. Throughout his whole life, David fought the Philistines on so many occasions. And on the last occasion, remember, he's, he's exhausted. Who saves him? Abishai does. But David, as he frames his life is, no, 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 it was God who was my rescuer. See, here's the misread of David's story. And it's a misread of our story sometimes too. We're standing around waiting for a dramatic miracle from God when he's already been intimately and intricately involved in your life, being your rescuer, your savior, your strength. But sometimes we, we frame our lives in this story of, ah, I'm waiting for God to show up and prove himself and do a miracle for me. David didn't have the Moses experiences, but David looks at his life and says, oh, God's my rescuer. He's been giving God the credit for all the opportunities and all the rescue that came his way. Does that make sense? Question for you. Can you trace the hand of God in your life? Does he get the credit for all the opportunities that have come your way? Does he get the credit that when you've called out to him and God, he brought someone your direction? When you prayed for, for, to get well, and you're like, yes, I was healed and I got better. And you're like, yeah, but I went to Kaiser. I know, that's great. And you're well and you're here. When God gives you financial blessing, do you give God the credit? You're like, man, I am so smart. I'm doing so well in my life. I think David would say this. God's the hero of your story. Question, is he? Do we talk that way and think that way? and look for God's handprint on our life. The second is this. When we are in trouble, David would say this, cry out to God, call out to God. Look at verse four. It says, I called to the Lord who's worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. Verse seven, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Most people, most Christians walk away from the Christian faith when pain goes up. When life gets tough, they stop talking to their Christian friends. Sometimes they stop praying. They stop reading their word. And sometimes it's because of this. They had this faulty belief that when I followed Jesus, when I gave my life to Christ and I became a Christian, that certainly God was going to give me the good life. He doesn't promise ever that life would be easy. But he promises that he's good and he's with us in our pain. When you get in trouble, whether it be by your own doing or someone else's doing, it's an invitation to call out to God and say, God, would you show up and show off in my life again? 
Would you step back in and be the hero of my story? And that's good news for some of you. That's encouraging to some of you because right now, maybe you're in a hard spot. And maybe that's what brought you to church today. God, I need your help. There's a broken relationship. There's a bad medical report. There's something happening. And and God, I just, I need you today. And maybe that's the one thing you're going to hear. That today, God wants you to call out to him. And once again, let him be the hero of your story. David goes on with this next piece of wisdom. And it's the why behind why God rescued David. And I'm going to say it this way. Uh, God's rescue is based on his grace. Look at verse 22, such a great verse, underline this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's grace. God just delighted in David. And grace is the clear message of his story. Who was David, right? He's the youngest of all of his brothers. His family's the least in the tribe. He's in the least tribe of everyone. There's no way God should have picked David to be the king. God had all these other clear choices that he could have made. But because of God's preference for David, it wasn't based off of David's character or his courage. It was simply because of this. God chose him because it's God's grace. If there's not a clearer message of that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, you became a Christian. How? Because you were so smart and figured it out. You thought you were chasing God? He was chasing you down. He found you. You didn't find him. The only reason that we came to this belief and this conviction that the resurrection of Christ is true is because God was wooing us to himself. Our rescue is based completely on God's grace, not because of our efforts. I mean, we didn't deserve to be saved by anything that we have done. Our salvation is solely based on the mercy and the grace of God alone. But here's what's so great. If I took you to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, you don't have to go there. Let me just read this to you. This is written to Christians who are saved by God's grace. But the writer writes, then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. It's like, we're already Christians. He's like, I know, but don't you approach the throne of, of God, his throne of grace, and let's do it with confidence. Here's what he says. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you cry out to God for help, it's based off of his grace, not your goodness. Which means that because, come on, he ever done something stupid? And everybody said? (laughs) Maybe it was this morning you did something stupid, I don't know. You have and you will. And it's in those moments that we go, yeah, but man, why would I go to God? I, I put this on myself. Yeah, you did put it on yourself. But listen, why wouldn't we approach his throne of grace with confidence, knowing that he, we will find grace to help us in our time of need? I don't know what it is about Christians that you're like, yep, I got saved by grace. But then you think that the rest of your life is living, you're, lived, you're living it by your great obedience and courage and character. We stand under God's grace and we just got to keep approaching that throne of grace and accepting his help. Um, Now, if you look at this next point four, you might be thinking this, that I'm about to say the opposite. Here's the point. God rewards obedience. Look at verse 21. And I I hope you remember all of David's story right now. Listen to this. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. 
According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. I'm sorry, what? Is David on crack? Because he must not remember the previous other chapters. We, we, from December 31st on that Sunday and all the Sundays following, we've been talking about how messed up David is. David and Bathsheba, adulterer, murderer. Then his horrible parenting with his son Absalom ignores his daughter who's in pain. And then he's going to write, the Lord's dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. It goes on, verse 25. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of, to my cleanness in his sight. It's like the shocking part of David's story. Is he just totally ignorant of his own sin? This is why one of the reasons why people think, uh, commentators think, David wrote this before Bathsheba. Right? I mean, when you were younger, do you ever write something like that? The Lord is treating me according to my righteousness. I've treated, I've treated God so well, so much respect for him, so much obedience that the, the Lord is blessing me. You just keep living a little longer, okay? Because I'll tell you the honest truth, you and I, we live on the other side of the Bathsheba story. Listen, I'm not calling you an adulterer, okay? <laughs> I'm not calling you a murderer. But if you're follow Jesus for any length of time, you have willfully gone against God's instruction. You've willfully disobeyed him. You've willfully sinned. I know it because I do it all the time. I just don't want to make an excuse for it. So how could David write this? Um, There's a couple beliefs. Commentators say this. Well, maybe he wrote it before the whole Bathsheba thing. But here's the problem. Where it's placed in this document at the end of 2 Samuel, the writer wants you to know that this this is his legacy letter. So he's saying this, or at least claiming it after, at the end of his life, after the Bathsheba incident. The second way that commentators deal with this is by saying this. David so fully confessed his sin before God that his identity is not as a broken sinner, but as a child of God. Third way that commentators have dealt with this is this, is is to say, you know, David's stories of brokenness and sin, those are told so that we know how broken he was. But David had such also glorious moments of great character. You remember the cave? And Saul comes in and David's whole army's back in the cave with him. And they're like, he delivered the king to you so you could kill him. And his whole army is like, go get him or let us do it. And David's like, no one touches the king. That's God's anointed, even though Saul was an evil man acting evil. And David spared his life. He showed strength, character, and courage. I was thinking, well, maybe the Bathsheba was just a blip on the radar. Like, oh, it was just, and how he handled Absalom. Maybe, maybe it's just, that was a small part of David's life. The rest was so courageous and Can I just say this? I think this is what David would tell you in his legacy. God rewards obedience. It's that simple. I don't think David would tell you like he was super obedient all of his life. Um, I'm going to help you do something real quick. I want to wade in the deep end of the theology pool with you for just a moment. Flip the page. Go to chapter 23, verse 5. He writes this. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made... Uh, with me an everlasting covenant. (laughs) Oh, David. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. What does that sound like? 
Listen, God blessed me because my house was right with God. Absalom, Amnon, Tamar. You didn't talk to your son for like seven years. You avoided him and he turned on you and created a conspiracy and it led to his death. Your house is right with God. Um, the reason I call this the deep end of the pool is sometimes biblical translation is very difficult. Old Testament, this part written in Hebrew, the first, uh, the phrase, there's this Hebrew word in there that if we just transliterated it into English, it would be K-I-Y, okay, K-I-Y. The word is really tough to translate because it could mean this. It's this proposition of if my house had not been right with God, like then why would God make a covenant with me for life? And it's the claim that his house was right with God. But that word could also be translated to ask or to, to say, although, and it becomes a negative. Here's how the King James translates it. Listen to this. Although my house be not so with God, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath, I love hath, he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Some of the older translations, it literally states the opposite because they're not sure what that one word means. And so, can I be just be real honest with you? There's some moments where we translate this, we're like, we're not really sure. Here's what I'm 100% confident in. God rewards obedience, and I think that's what David's saying. You and I both know that David cannot make the claim of innocence in his life, and he wouldn't. He would make the claim of forgiveness, though. I think he's actually saying, Listen, I know that my family was not right with God, but God blessed me because of his grace. Now, here's what's so interesting. Watch me. Sometimes we, the Bible teaches us things that we think they're, they're so opposite. God blesses us based off his grace. Is that true? 100%. God rewards obedience. Is that true? I know some of you are like, I don't know. Like, what does that mean? Well, let me prove it to you. Ephesians 6, 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. You guys, read the New Testament. It's all over the place. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what they've done. That's like end of life reward. Does God also reward in the here and now? Does he bless obedience? Matthew 6, 3. But when you give to the needy, he gives three examples, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. When you do all three of those, it says, or any of those, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. God rewards obedience, obedience in fasting, obedience in prayer, and obedience in giving. He rewards it. But God also rescues us based off of his grace. Do you see it? You're going to hold them both, and they're both true. Because I certainly don't want to just say, God rescues based off of his grace and give myself permission to live however I want, right? You've met Christians like that. And you look at the wake of their life, and there's destruction in it. God also rewards obedience. It's what we're striving for. Fifth thing, God creates extraordinary lives by his strength. If you go back to chapter 22, verse 30, it reads this way. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. 
It is, in verse 33, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my ways secure. I mean, it's so interesting. It's the, the end of David's life. I mean, he just had this senior moment where he, he couldn't scale the wall anymore, right? He couldn't fight like he used to. But he's like, let me tell you, it was God's strength throughout my whole life that I became the David that became the king. You know, can I just ask you a question? Do you live in God's strength? I think sometimes we're like, hey, this is who I am. These are my strengths and these are my weaknesses. This is what I'm capable of. And we just set the bar low for our lives. Why? So that we know we're going to be successful. Because when the bar is low and you win, you're like, look, I did it. I hit my goals. Woohoo! But you can hit plenty of goals and never live in God's strength. I think by God's strength, he wants to create extraordinary lives out of ordinary people. And when I look around, I see fantastic ordinary people. That was meant to be a little bit fun. But I know some of you in your stories. that you said, you know, listen, I can't by myself share Christ with my friends. But by the strength of God, the power of the, the gospel is not in how I present it. It's in just telling the story of Jesus. And you set your goal high. I want to lead someone to Christ. I want to baptize them up here. Why? Because that's what God's called us to. And yet for so many people, like, I just don't know if I'm good at that. Like, I'm never, ever going to lead anybody to Christ. You've been walking with Christ for 30 years. You've never led anybody to Christ. Why not? Live in his strength, not your own ability. Maybe this is going to translate to your academic career. I don't know. Maybe you need to set the bar higher. You're flying, trying to fly under the radar. Maybe it is about you and your career. You're so afraid to try and, and you're afraid of failing that you're never going to set the bar higher. Well, don't live in your strength. Live in God's strength. What if he's calling you to something? That's what you have to figure out. What is God calling you to? Not just, oh, what are the things that I know I can do? How many of you actually try things that you know you're not really good at? Some of us do. I don't. I like to be good at things. So maybe I'll just be careful in trying. I'm having trouble hearing you. I think David would say this. God creates extraordinary lives by his strength. Let me, let me finish with this. By the way, Ephesians 6.10 is such a great verse. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I hope when you look back over your life, you can see God's power again and again and again, that you didn't play it safe. Finally, last thing is this. He wraps up his whole psalm with this, verse 47. The Lord lives, exclamation point. We do not follow a dead God in a dead book. My God is alive and he is well. He says, praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my savior. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord. Final point. I think gratitude flows from a life that is centered on God. I mean, why is gratitude so important? Listen, if you're grateful, that's part of the gift you pass to your kids. It's part of the gift that you're going to pass to your grandkids. Because when you're grateful for who God is in your life, for who he is and for what he's done, at that moment, your gratitude becomes this bug that can infect the rest of your family. And listen, grandparents, I know this about you. I've talked to so many of you that your greatest desire is that your kids and your grandkids would walk with Jesus. And for some of you, you're still waiting for that day. Live a life of gratitude. When God is the hero of your story and you call on him when you're in trouble, when you rely on his grace, when you know that he rewards obedience and you live according to his commands, you want to pass this gratitude along to your kids so that they might know him and follow him 
and walk with him. So let me just finish with this simple question. What part of David's legacy needs to become your wisdom and practice today? Because throughout this whole thing, I've said an awful lot in those six points, but I would just ask you this. What's the one thing that God is grabbing your heart on, giving you a word about and saying, this is what I want you to hear right now. Maybe it's this. Do you live with God as the hero of your story? Do you live in such a close relationship with God that you see his rescue and his grace all over your life? Maybe today you need to call out to him for help. And can I say this? If you want someone to pray with you today, just stick around. There's plenty of people in this room who know Christ, and they would love to pray for you today. Maybe you actually need to renew your commitment to obedience to God because there's blessing in that obedience. Maybe you need to recognize that you've set the bar too low and you've stopped taking risks and living in the strength of Christ. Final thing, maybe it's just gratitude for God's grace in your life. So to end, I want you to just bow your heads and pray for just a moment. I want to give you space to just ask this question. God, what are you saying to me? So just you and God, close your eyes and just be with him for a moment. What did you hear this morning that was beyond my voice, but it's God speaking to you? Because we all have the opportunity to build a legacy of faith and we all have the opportunity to pass it along like David. I believe in moments like this, God wants to speak to us. He expects us to respond. Don't let this just be a message that makes you feel good or feel bad because it ain't about your feelings. It's about walking with Christ daily. What's he calling you to? So Lord, we, um, we come before you and we thank you for David's messy life that reminds us of your grace reminds us of the reward as we live in obedience. And God, we would just say this, help us to walk with you so you're the hero of our story. Help us to be able to see that your hand is all over our lives, God. And Lord, we thank you for rescuing us. I mean, your grace and your favor over us, so undeserved. And would you give us courage, God, and conviction to walk in obedience and walk in the name of Jesus to live extraordinary lives. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen.